The entire episode of Balak and Bilam, and of course, who can forget the talking donkey, provides many lessons and potential areas of study. But perhaps the most confounding aspect of this story is the apparent inconsistency and change of heart, change of mind, that Akash Baruch Hu himself seems to undergo. On the one hand, in the beginning, in Perak Chafet, Pasuk Yudbet, when Balak asks Bilam, hires him through his emissaries to go, Bilam says, I, I don't know, I have to ask Hashem, I have to ask God. And right away in Pasuk Yudbet, the Pasuk tells us that Hashem tells him unequivocally, Lo you can't go, Lo you can't curse them, Ki Baruch Hu, they're a blessed people. So Hashem initially is very, very against. However, as we know, after receiving the negative response, Balak sends back more prestigious emissaries and more money. And once again, Balaam says, okay, I have to ask God. And then now, eight psukim later in Pasachaf, Hashem tells him, Im lecha anashim, kum lechitam. These people have come again to get you to go with them. You're allowed to go with them. Just one condition. But when you get there, you can only say what I give you permission to say. You can only do what I tell you to do. And that's a, you know, a, a ultimately subsequently fulfilled condition. But at the moment, he gives them permission. And the very next pasuk we are told, Balaam having gotten the positive reply from Hashem, he saddles up and he starts going. And then in the very next pasuk we read, Hashem is angry at him that he went. What is going on? <laughs> this whole thing is so confounding. First Hashem said no, then Hashem said yes, then Balaam went, and then Hashem got upset at him for going. Isn't he just following Hashem's second and subsequent explicit permission? What is going on? So the Ramban, in a lengthy and detailed explication of these psukim, gives the following beautiful and brilliant parshanut, and insight into the story. He says, really, there really were multiple stages. Initially, in the first stage, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says not to go, because the only reason they want you is to curse this nation, Am Yisrael, and this is a nation that's blessed, as we read in Pasuk Yudbet. However, the second time, when they come back, and now again, a second time, Bilam asks HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem basically says to him, yes, you can go, kum leich itam, if, here's the key point, adds Ramban, if they just want you to go with them, there's nothing wrong with you going. There's nothing wrong with you asking. Says Ramban, it's always good to be shoalitza from Hashem. What could be bad about asking Hashem for permission for something? And Hashem says, listen, if the reason you're, you, they want you to go, if the reason you're going to go is just to accompany them, then there's nece- not necessarily any problem. I've already told you the first time you asked, Ape Sukkim earlier, I've already told you you can't curse them. But now they want you to go anyway just to accompany them. You could go, and by the way, plus an extra point, if it turns out that I have you and I want you to bless them, then, you're going to have to do and say what I say to say. Don't be scared of them. So on that condition, Hashem says, no problem, you can go. However, says Ramban, then comes the, the next stage. And that is that Bilam should have told the people that those were the conditions upon which he was going. But Bilam never did. He never told them that. Because, of course, he realized, and he was scared, that if he would tell them that he was just going to accompany them, and he might even bless them, then they never would have wanted him to go. And says Ramban, he had a tremendous eagerness to go, so he kind of left out that part, and that gave them the impression, you can't blame them, it was reasonable to deduce on their part, that if he's going, it's going to 
do for what we want, which is to curse the people. And then, Pasuk Chabet comes, says Ramban, and that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu upset him. Because he didn't, you know, come forward, he didn't tell the truth as to why he was going with them, and on what condition God had given him permission, and he gave them the impression, Rahman al-Atzlan, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had given permission to curse. If that's not bad enough, says Ramban, it's inviting a subsequent Chil Hashem. Because of course, no such thing took place, and if Bilam will try to curse, that's not going to happen. He's eventually going to be told, you know, clearer that he can't curse them, and as we all know, he'll eventually bless them, and it will look to the emissaries, to the shlichim of Balak, as if Hashem changed his mind yet again, and he's fickle, and it will look, and make look, Hashem look like he's indecisive, that itself is a chil Hashem. In a much shorter presentation, the Sforno also seems to have this interpretation, that the reason Hashem got angry at Bilam is that even though he gave him permission to be a neutral observer, Bilam actually went as an interested party. However, as Nechama Leibowitz points out, this beautiful and brilliant interpretation of the Ramban, and as well the Sforno, explains everything on a logical, conceptual level, but there doesn't seem to be any indication in the text, and the Ramban doesn't necessarily bring any indication in the text, that that was what Bilam was doing. From the text itself, there's no reason to think that Bilam was going for any other reason than to bless the people. After all, Hashem already told him that you can't bless them, and so far, Bilam is just saying, I'm going to do whatever God says. So there's no obvious reason why, to proof that that's why Bilam was going, that he had a nefarious change of heart, or that clear why Hashem is angry at him. It's an interesting theory of the Ramban and the Sforno, but it's hard to see or rooted in the text. However, Chama Leibowitz points out, perhaps Rashi is sensitive to this. Even though Rashi doesn't give the whole elaborate theory, but Rashi does say on those words that Bilam went with them, Vayelech im sarayameyav, Rashi adds, Vayelech im sarayameyav, meaning, Libo kalibam shava. He went of one mind. He was going from that moment to curse the people. But again, where did Rashi know this? What's Rashi getting at? So perhaps for this we can turn to the Malbim, because the Malbim points out that there is a subtle nuance in the text. And perhaps this is the proof and the explanation of the Ramban, the Sforno, and Rashi. The Malbim points out that when Hashem gave Bilam permission to go, he uses the term Lech Itam. However, in the next Pasuk, when it says that Bilam went, it says that Vayelech Im, sorry, not Itam, but Im. Says the Malbim, there's a difference. Itam is more going along in a formal sense, but remaining an independent voice, a separate point of view. But what Bilam did was, in fact, the opposite. He went of one mind. And I think the lesson here, of course, for us is that very often we choose and there are good reasons to walk with people who may not be exactly who we are. That can sometimes be allowed, but it always has to be itam, keeping our independence and never im. For all the twists and turns in the remarkable Bilam saga as he tries to curse the Jewish people, there's an obvious and profound question that must be dealt with. The whole premise of Balak coming to Bilam was that Bilam was already a prophet of renown, someone who was known to have divine, perhaps magical abilities to do incredible things, to forestall the future, to curse, as the case may be. But why, asks Rashi, paraphrasing the Medrash and the Tanhuma, why did Hashem allow this to begin with? Why would Hashem endow such an evil, wicked person with the power of prophecy to begin with? The whole story should never have gotten off the ground because there never should have been such a prophet like Bilam. Why would Hashem allow His presence, His spirit, His soul, His essence to rest on such an evil person? Why would He make such a person like Bilam into a Navi?
And Rashi explains that the reason is, so that the non-Jews should not be able to have an excuse. This was a preemptive strike, as it were, by a Kaddish Baruch Hu, in anticipation of an excuse that the non-Jews would have at some point in the future. How can you compare us unfavorably to the Jewish people? How can you punish us in contrast to the way you bless the Jewish people? Just because they accepted the Torah, but they had a Moshe Rabbeinu. If we had had a leader like that, if we had had a prophet like that, we also would have accepted the Torah. So says Hashem, I did. I gave you a great prophet like Bilaam. The Jewish people had their chance through Moshe. They made the most of their chance. You had a chance with Bilaam, but you and Bilaam chose a wicked path. In a similar vein, the other Midrashim make the same comment, uh, but even go one step further uh, in their commentary to the Pasuk at the end of the Torah in Parshat Zos Abracha, where the Torah tests, Lokam Navi Od be Yisrael Kemosha. There was never was and never will be another prophet as great as Moshe. But Chazal note that the Pasuk actually says, Lokam Navi Od be Yisrael. In the Jewish people, there never will be another prophet. Aval Olam come, but there was once upon a time a prophet in the non Jewish world who was as great as Moshe, so it seems, and that was Bilam. Once they've made that incredible statement, going even further than Rashi did in our Parsha, maybe Rashi's implicit in our Parsha, but the, this Medrash goes even further than the Tanhuma that Rashi was quoting, then, of course, the Medrash asks, well, why did Hashem do this? Why would Hashem allow such a wicked person to be as great as Moshe? And again, the Medrash gives the same answer, so that the non-Jews would not have an excuse. They had their chance, they had their great prophet in Bilaam. A question that needs to be asked, perhaps, on all of this, on Rashi and our Parsha, on these other Medrashim, is the question that the Ksav Sofer asks. And this is the Ksav Sofer, the son and successor of the famed Chassam Sofer. And he asks, really? Ech yale aladas? Ha'itachain? Could Chazal really mean, by implication and our parsha, explicitly in other sources, that Bilaam was really as great as Moshe? Perhaps he was a prophet. That certainly is the simple reading of the Psukim in our parsha and other places in Tanakh. But especially in our parsha, it certainly seems that way. Okay, a prophet. That's mysterious and surprising enough. But still, to say he was as great as Moshe? How is it even conceivable to consider that? The Ksav Sofer assumes that that's ridiculous. It cannot be, says the Ksav Sofer, that that's what Chazal have in mind. So what do they have in mind? So he explains the following. We have to realize, he says, that Moshe Rabbeinu's life, or his spiritual career, as it were, as a prophet, as a leader, had two halves, two stages. The first was everything that led up until Matan Torah. The second stage was Matan Torah and everything that came after that. Even before Matan Torah, says Aksav Sofer, Moshe was a great prophet. Hashem spoke to him at the burning bush. He merited to be the one chosen to be the liberator uh, and savior of the Jewish people. He took the Jewish people out of Egypt and throughout that entire process, Hashem is talking to him. He's a Navi. He's an instrument of great, great miracles. He's obviously on a great level. But then there is Moshe Rabbeinu after his rendezvous with Hashem, 40 days on the mountain, being the instrument of Matan Torah and Kabbalah Satorah, then Moshe achieves an even higher, greater level, which is the Moshe Rabbeinu, who we love and revere for all eternity. That's the Moshe at the end of his life, the second stage of his life, from Matan Torah until his death. That's the second stage, that's the ultimate high level that Moshe reached. Before Matan Torah, he was on a different, lower level. Even that level, says Aksav Sofer, the first stage of Moshe, was a great level. So great, in fact, that no other Jewish prophet was ever as great as Moshe was in the first stage. However, says Ksav Sofer, that's what Chazal are referring to. When they say that Bilaam was on the level of Moshe, they're talking about Moshe, part one. Moshe in the first stage of his career, before Matan Torah. And that was an incredible level, and it makes sense that those two would be parallel. That's the whole premise of the Midrashim. Just like Moshe was before Matan Torah, Bilaam was. And therefore, you can't have an excuse. 
if Bilam was the same level as Moshe was before Matan Torah, so they had the fair chance, just as good as the Jewish people did. However, Moshe made the right decisions, and the Jewish people followed Moshe for the right reasons, and they made the right decisions, and they became the Amanifchar who accepted the Torah. The Jewish, the non-Jewish people who had Bilam, who was just as great as Moshe was before Matan Torah, but Bilam led an evil life, and the non-Jews didn't follow in the right directions, and therefore they have no excuses because they had their prophet who was on the same level as Moshe was before Matan Torah. Now that we understand the Medrash's comparison to, of Bilam to Moshe, Moshe on stage one, Moshe in the early stage of his career, the Ksav Sofer adds one critical, critical point, which is really a valuable lesson to all of us. What made Moshe part two? What made Moshe in the second stage of his leadership and religious career, what made him so great, so unique, the Lokam Yisrael Od, Navi Kamosha Od, that made Moshe so unique that no one ever was and will be like Moshe in part two? Says the Ksav Sofer, it wasn't because of what Moshe got when he was on Har Sinai, but rather what he gave as, you, as it were. Moshe Zohar Zika Harabim, Veschus Harabim Tluyaba. Moshe was the Mezake, he was the instrument that benefited, that gave to the Jewish people this unique gift of the Torah. Alidei Cain, and it's through that, the fact that he was the Mezake Harabim, he was the instrument to help benefit and raise up all the other millions of Jews. That's why Al-Kain, Allah, Venis Allah, Kolkach. It wasn't everything that Moshe undoubtedly received on Har Sinai, and no question he did. He experienced things that were singular and unique. But that's not what makes him uniquely great. What made him uniquely great and unprecedented, never before, never duplicated, is that he was the Zmzake Harabim in a unique way. Because he's the only one who ever will have the opportunity to be the one who gave the Jewish people the Torah. And by giving us the greatest gift that we ever could have received, he achieved a level that no one else could ever. And this is a tremendous lesson to us. If we want to rise to levels to maximize our potential, we have to realize that it all comes from being Mizake the Rabbin. We never may be, do the same thing as Moshe did, but there are many ways that we can all help the Tzibor, especially in teaching Torah, and that will be the basis of our growth, just like it was of Moshe's. Right after Bilaam has failed at his attempt to curse the Jewish people, his curses have been miraculously turned into blessings, Bilaam does not give up. And he hatches one more plan, this one far more successful. As he comes up with an idea to use the Moabite women to seduce the Jewish men into acts of sexual immorality. Worse yet, before these women would yield to the desires of the Jewish men, they required the Jewish people, the Jewish men here, to worship their Avodah Zarah, Baal Peor, and only then would they consent to their desires. And in fact, so tempted by these women, the men yielded to that requirement, and therefore they went from bad to worse, coupling Giliarayos with Avodah Zarah. No surprise, of course, Hashem is furious. There's a plague, He's killing out the Jewish people, He requires Moshe and the leaders to execute those who have been guilty. And as Moshe is gathering the leaders to go through to execute Hashem's justice, the situation turns even worse as Zimri, the prince of the tribe of Shimon, takes a Moavite princess, a Midianite princess, Cosby, and there in front of Moshe and the leaders, in public, in a holy place, in front of the most holy people, in front of everyone, they commit an act of absolute immorality, public display of immorality, a breach of every possible standard, something that could not have been imagined, completely unconscionable. And as bad as it is, perhaps what is shocking is that Moshe, the Moshe, the leader of leaders, is paralyzed. He's indecisive. 
all the Torah tells us he can summon himself to do with the other leaders, Hema Bochim Pesach Ohel Moed. At the entrance of the Ohel Moed, they are crying. And it's only as the, we read in the final psukim of our parsha, Pinchas, a grandson of Aaron a Kohen, he steps forward with his spear and he kills both Zimri and Cosby, and by so doing, quells and calms Hashem's anger, stops the plague, and saves the Jewish people. As shocking as this whole episode is, the Medrash, in particular, is bothered by Moshe's inaction and Moshe's crying in place of stepping forward to take care of what Zimri and Cosby were doing. Why, asks the Medrash, why was Moshe crying instead of acting? And initially the, Mo- the Medrash is critical of Moshe. Shnisrapu yadehem, somehow he was weak, he faltered. But then the Medrash goes on and with some sensitivity and nuance seems to explain and perhaps even defend Moshe's feeling of betrayal and his own weakness. After all, says the Medrash, what can this be comparable to? A princess who is being prepared to be led to the chuppah by her family, and at the last minute is found to have been unfaithful. At that moment, in such a public arena, at her chuppah, right there, in front of everyone, right before what should have been such a happy and tremendous moment of pride for the family, comes crashing down, says the Medrash, the father and the relatives will simply fall apart. They won't even know what to say, what to do, will be so overwhelmed with humiliation and pain. Kach Yisrael, says the Medrash. So to hear, the Jewish people after 40 years, they're camped right near the edge of the Yardane. They're poised to enter the land of Eretz Yisrael. They're so close. And they turned also to promiscuity. They betray Hashem. And therefore, the Medrash says, we can understand why Moshe and the other leaders became weak. In a certain sense, the Medrash is depicting Moshe as comparable to the father of the bride in the Mashal. After all, this is not the initial generation that betrayed Hashem, the Meraglim or the Egel, who were Moshe's people, but you know, more or less already adults. That generation had died out. This is the next generation, the one that Moshe had raised for almost 40 years in the desert. He was, so to speak, their father. And they betrayed him at the last moment in the worst possible way. We could understand in a certain sense why Moshe would be so overwhelmed and unable to act. And yet the Medrash then pivots and seems again to be upset at Moshe. It's still not satisfied. After all, this is the same Moshe who stood up against the entire nation at the time of the Cheda Egel. Two million people, 600,000 adult men. He can't handle one, one Zimri. So the Medrash concludes, or answers, excuse me, at this point, something that Rashi himself says, well, Moshe, so to speak, didn't act to yield for the opportunity, Bahashkacha was the opportunity for Pinchas to step forward, for him to shine, and him to be rewarded. And yet, the Medrash concludes in another direction, not defending Moshe because it gave an opportunity to Pinchas, but rather saying, Lefisha Nisatzel. In a certain sense, on his own level, Moshe was lazy. He didn't do what he should have done. And the Medrash is aware that this is harsh judgment. After all, the Medrash says that God is Medaktekim Hatzadikim Atkechot Hasara. What might have been considered understandable for you and me is considered inexcusable laziness, quote-unquote, on behalf of Moshe. Moshe is judged on a higher level, and to his, on his level he failed. This doesn't mean lazy the way you and I mean lazy. It means that he didn't take an opportunity 
he didn't show initiative when he could have. He didn't rise to the occasion and do what could have been done. The Medrash, right before this conclusion, quotes the or paraphrases the, the Mishnah in Perkyavos and Perkei. That we should be as bold as a leopard and as swift as an eagle, as fleet as a deer, as strong as a lion to do the will of Hashem. And what this is teaching us, and that's the context of that Mishnah, is that a person needs to have initiative. When opportunities present themselves, even if they're not strict obligations, but they're opportunities, when we're presented with those opportunities, we have to rise to the occasion. And to not do so, we see from our Medrash, it's not just to miss out on an opportunity, not just to miss an opportunity of an Asay Tov, but it's a form of a deficiency. It's a form of Sur We need to strive in our service of Hashem to maximize those opportunities that are presented to us, not be lazy on any level, and let them pass us by. The punishment that Moshe received was unique to him, because perhaps only Moshe would have been punished like this because of his high level. But the overall perspective on missing opportunities and not having that initiative when they are presented, that's something that not only Moshe should have done, but every one of us can and should do, and we must learn from this terrible mistake. The central narrative of this week's Parsha is, of course, Bilam's attempt to curse the Jewish people and the ultimate futility of those efforts. His klolos become brachos, Bilam's curses miraculously are transformed into blessings. And over the course of those blessings, two different times Bilam describes the Jewish people using the metaphor of a lion. First in Perchav Gimel, Pasuchav Dalid, he says, Hein am kelavi yakum, ucha'ari yisnasa. This is a nation that rises like the king of beasts, kelavi yakum, and lifts itself like a lion, Khari Yisnasa. Two different terms there in that first Pasuk. But just a few Pesukim later, in Perchavdalid, Pasuk Tes, again, Bilam says, using similar terminology, Karash Shachav, Khari Uchilavi, Miyikimenu, crouches and lies down like a lion, like an awesome lion. Who will rouse him? Two different times with different Lashonos, but all using the same basic metaphor, comparing the Jewish people to a lion. Why? Why are we compared in this incredibly important moment as Hashem miraculously transforms intended curses into blessings? Why are we compared, of all things, specifically to a lion? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, as one as his Sichos, included in the collection of the Likute Sichos, second volume, noted that by referring to us as a crouching lion. In fact, Bilam is alluding to the reality that as Jews, we often appear as if we're weak, as if we're merely lying dormant on the ground, when in fact the truth is we are like a crouching lion, possessing enormous strength and with potential to rise with great enthusiasm and vigor, if prompted and if called for. We're crouching, but we're ready to leap. Similarly, our description is a nation that rises and lifts itself up, as the Pasuk also describes, as we interpret it as referred to the Jewish people, implies that we were previously down, or at least we appeared to be down, before we lifted ourselves up. Yisnasa, 
both the first half of the Pasuk and the second half. And Plyos being literally on the ground or close to it, and then rising up. The Rebbe explained that the prophetic allusion here is to the fact that sometimes, and especially in Golis, we look dormant. We look like we're lying down. And in fact, more than once, perhaps sometimes often, we get knocked down. Things don't always go the way we would have liked. There are times, in fact, there have been many times that we were hurt. But the power of the Lavi is that it is Yakum. The lion cannot be tamed. The Ari is Hisnasa. You can knock it down, but it will not stay down. Similarly, the greatness of the Jewish people is that even when we're hurt, Davka, when we've taken a shot to the chin, as it were, Mi Yikimenu, that's when we roar like a lion and we rouse to greatness. No matter how many times we've been knocked down, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it hurts, Am Yisrael gets up. The Jewish people have been down before, but we are never out. The Rebbe went on to add some support for this idea to develop it based on a homiletic interpretation. Al-Pidrush, he explained a halacha that appears in the Gemara Masech the Babakama on Dav Tezvav. There the Gemara says that a lion is a mu'ad l'olam. <clears throat> and the straightforward halachic interpretation of this statement is that the owner of a lion is always fully responsible, completely liable for any damage or destruction that his property, his lion, does. Regardless of whether or not that lion had previously acted violently, if there was, even if there was no history, no prior history of any damage or violence, it doesn't matter. Ari mu'ad l'olam, a lion is always considered potentially dangerous, and therefore the owner is always fully responsible and fully culpable for any damage that his property, that his lion impacts on other people and other people's property. However, Al-Pidrush, with a Ruach of Chasidus, and similar to what he explained about the Psukim in our Parsha, the Barber Cherebi explains and interpreted this statement of the Gemara to mean that the Ari is Muad, Milashon Amod, or Omed, that the lion is standing, the lion stands the Olam, no matter what. Whatever you throw at the lion, no matter how many times it gets knocked down, it is Muad the Olam. The lion always gets back up. And this, as we have seen in his interpretation of Bilam's Brachos, is the singular greatness of the Jewish people. Shevo become, as the Pasuk in Mishlei tells us, no matter how many times we get knocked down, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it hurts, Am Yisrael gets back up. Unquestionably, I'm sure the Lubavitch Rebbe gave similar advice to countless people in individual circumstances of challenge. And there may have been numerous times, I don't know exactly how many, but I'm sure there were other times where he had to give this as more communal or more national advice. But there's at least one specific time, 1956, where we know he gave this exact message to a community that was in crisis and that needed these words more than ever. In 1956, there was a terror attack in Kfar Chabad, the new, somewhat new and nascent, still growing and weak community, developing community, of Chabad Hasidim, the Labavitch Enclave near Lud. Fedian terrorists snuck into the school spraying machine gun fire and murdered five students and a teacher. The community was obviously traumatized and in fact there was talk of closing all of the local schools. A few days after the attack, they received a brief telegram from the Rebbe, whose message was encapsulated in three sharp but powerful words. Behem Shech Habinyan Tenuchamu. Comfort will come through continued building. This is the eternal charge of the Am Kalavi, 
and this is our legacy. We are a people who builds and knows how to rise to the challenge. We always get up. We never give up. That's what it means to be part of Am Yisrael. That's our history, and that's our destiny. Whether it's individuals going through challenges, or those times where Am Yisrael as a nation has been challenged and been knocked down. We always get up, we're like the lion, and we will do so until the time of the final redemption. The Gemara in Brachos, Tafyad Beis, tells us that the Chachamim at some point wanted to insert reading Parshas Balak, the story of uh, Bilam trying to curse the Jewish people and then that turning into blessings. They wanted to insert that uh, part of the story into the daily recitation of the Kriyashma. But ultimately they decided not to do it because of Tircha Ritzibura. This would add a necessary length to the davening, it would be inconvenience and not appreciated by the community, by the Tzibur. The reasons for why specifically on a substantive uh, level, thematically, why they would want to insert this uh, chapter, this part of our Torah reading into the Kriyashma of all parts, why Dafka, this, what they call Barsha's Balach, is discussed in the Gemara and the Mepharshim there. But what I wanted to speak about is in fact a more common, very common, maybe the most common example where this issue is discussed, and that is in the issue of waiting for the rabbi during davening. We know that it's common in most, if not all, shuls and yeshivas that you wait for the rabbi or the Rosh Hashiva, whoever the leader of that community is, certainly for Chazar Sashatz and in many, many, many shuls as well for finishing uh, saying Shema, the daily Shema. And the question is, what is the story with that and how does that relate to this idea mentioned in the Gemara of Tircha Ditzibura? And what is really fascinating, I think will come to a shock as a shock to most people, is that the earliest sources that we have all say not to wait for the rabbi. I believe the earliest source on this topic is a responsa, a tshuva of the Binyamin Zev, Simon Kuf Samaches. The Binyamin Zev was a great god who lived in the first half of the 16th century in Greece. And he writes that a person, a shul community, should not wait for the rabbi or the god ha'ir, because it's a tircha, it's not fair to the community, it's not fair to the people who are there in shul, to make them wait if the rabbi is davening much slower than the rest of the Tzibur. He also mentions a related topic, although one we won't get into too much, which is that he says you once the minion arrives at the start of davening, if the rabbi is still not there, you might have thought you should wait to be respectful to the rabbi and not start without him. But he says, no, if this is the start time and you have a minion, you don't wait, because that would be Tircha de Tzibura. Interesting topic, although not one we're going to discuss. But again, the Binyamin Zev, the first and very authoritative source on the topic, says not to wait for the rabbi for something like Hazar Sashatz. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's somewhat of an obscure source, and how do I know if we hold like him? Well, in fact, the Ramah and Simon Kuf Chavdalid brings down this Binyamin Zev and Paskins like him. Yes, this I think is really going to be surprising to most people. No less than the Ramah. Paskins, not to wait for the rabbi. He also mentions you shouldn't wait for the rabbi in terms of starting the davening, but for our purposes, he mentions you shouldn't wait for the rabbi when it comes to Chazar Sashat and things like that in the davening. Not fair. Going to slow down the davening. The Magad Avram and others uh, there in Shulchan Aruch bring a proof from the Gemara in Brachos on Daflam and Aleph, which tells us that Rabbi Akiva, when he would daven in public, he would be Makatzer Tfilaso, and the Gemara says the reason that he shortened his tefillah, some say he left out certain parts, or that he davened very fast, much faster than he would usually, the Gemara says, Torah because he was sensitive to the Tircha de Tzibura. And the Magan Avram explains that we see from Rabbi Kiva that he was so sensitive to the Tzibur and to them not being inconvenienced, that he would daven faster or 
perhaps even less than he would otherwise. We learn from that that it's not right for the rabbi to be marich in his tefillah. If Rabbi Kiva, of all people, one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time, if he was makatzer, if he goes faster, leaves out things, then why should your rabbi, why should any rabbi nowadays uh, be marich? And if the rabbi does that, he's not doing the right thing. He should have been following Rabbi Kiva's example. He's not doing the right thing. And therefore, you don't have to wait for him. Now, all of that uh, notwithstanding, as we all know, this is the practice, though. We do wait for the rabbi. We do wait for the Rosh Hashiva. And in fact, already in the time of the Magen Avram and the Mishnah Brewer brings this down as well, they comment, notwithstanding, despite the Psaq of the Ramah, which is based on even earlier Psaq of the Binyam and Zev, <coughs> says the Magen Avram, the Mishnah Brewer brings this down as well, the practice is to wait for the rabbi. What's really striking is that Rabbi Kivayegar has a tshuva, it's not included in the general collection of his responsa, but we have a manuscript which has been published in numerous places since then, where Rabbi Kivayegar is strident and extreme in his criticism of anybody who wouldn't wait for the rabbi. Chalila v'chas, it would be a terrible thing not to wait for the rabbi. All of Judaism could fall apart if we're not waiting for the rabbi. Really, really sensational and extreme approach of Rabbi Kivayegar, especially when you consider that the position he is criticizing was initially endorsed and paskined by none less than the Ramah. And yet, it's become such a universal practice that to change it from Rikki B'Eger's perspective would be a controversial uh, reform, if you will, and change in tradition. Even if we don't go as far as Rabbi Kivager, but as we all know, this is the practice, and it's a practice that was already endorsed in the time of the Magan Avram. How do we understand this? What happened to the seemingly straightforward authoritative psak of the Binyamin Zev, the straightforward authoritative psak of the Ramah? Psak of the Ramah, unquestioned, no one debates it in terms of uh, arguments and substance, and yet it's become universal that in fact we do wait for the rabbi or for the Rosh Hashiva. So very briefly, three theories that have been suggested. Uh, two primary and a third as well. The first, the Magen Avram brings us down, the Mishnah Buru quotes it, and that is that it's not really about the rabbi. Most people in shul, perhaps you'd say it's still true now, but it certainly was true, the Magen Avram says in his day, they daven too fast, which he says is shalokadin, you shouldn't daven so fast. But they daven so fast, but there's a minority of people who daven very slowly. But unfortunately, those people who daven slowly are penalized because they never have a chance to answer Kedusha with the rest of the shul, because everything happens so fast and they're still davening slowly. So if you have a rabbi in shul who's also presumably davening slowly, we say, wait for him, but really it's not so much about the rabbi per se as much as it is, to be respectful and be helpful to all the people who are davening the way they should, slower and with more kavana. Very interesting explanation of the Magad of Ram and the Mishnah Bura. Second theory that's mentioned by some poskim is that yes, it's true that really to wait for the rabbi is a compromise in the uh, kavod of the tzibur, but the tzibur is mochel. The tzibur doesn't mind. They'd rather show the tribute to the rabbi or have a slower davening, whatever the case the reason is, but they're mochel. We have other sources that prove that a tzibur is allowed to be mochel. A third suggestion that is made by some, perhaps seriously, and others more whimsically, Derech Tzachos, is that we have numerous sources that say that being a rabbi shortens your life, the stress, etc. And on the other hand, we have sources that say that davening slowly is a school for long life, and therefore the tzibur owes it to the rabbi for all the stress they cause him to wait and let him daven slowly.